Blog Talk Radio. Talk Box Radio. Talk Box Radio. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning into Talk Box Radio. I'm your host, Lisa Earhart. Today's topic is all about nonfiction audiobook narration. It's not just facts and figures. With my special guest and seasoned audiobook narrator, Sean Pratt. After the interview with Sean, we'll be taking calls from our listeners for those who'd like to have a chance to read for Sean and get his feedback. Get the scripts at talkboxradio.com forward slash scripts. Sean Pratt has been a working professional actor in theater, film, TV, and voiceovers for over 30 years. He holds a BFA in acting from Santa Fe University, New Mexico. He's been an audiobook narrator for 20 years, also known as Lloyd James, recording over 900 books in almost every genre, and has received eight Audiophile Magazine Earphones Awards and five Audi nominations from the Audio Publishers Association. Sean Pratt narrates for such companies as Blackstone Audiobooks, Tantor Media, Gildan Audio, Hatchet, Random House, Penguin, and Christian Audio. Notable titles include A Death in the Family by James Agee, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, Elvis in the Morning by William F. Buckley, and Lindbergh by A. Scott Berg. Currently, Sean coaches performers on audiobook narration technique. You can find him at seanprattpresents.com. Before bringing Sean on, I'd like to play you a few excerpts of Sean's audiobook narrations. The first is from Me, My Selfie, and I by James Walcott. And then we'll hear something from A Jane Austen Education by William Dershowitz. Let's listen now. Times Square selfies, even those involving a shish kebab device, are an improvement over the more prevalent custom of visitors asking passers-by, such as myself, would you mind taking a picture of us and offering me their camera? Selfies at least spare the rest of us on our vital rounds. But it is difficult to find any upside to the indulgence of selfies in public places intended as sites of remembrance and contemplation. There is a minor epidemic of visitors taking grinning selfies at the 9-11 memorial pools. And it isn't just students on school trips for whom social media is the only context they have. It's also adults who treat the 9-11 memorial as if it were just another sightseeing spot, holding their camera aloft and taking a selfie, indifferent or oblivious to the names of the dead victims of the 1993 and 2001 attacks inscribed on the bronze panels against which some of them are leaning. The Polaroid Instant Camera was also a major selfie provider, but none of these technologies scaled. It was the marriage of digital photography and the Internet that provided the delivery system for potential mass proliferation. As Allure magazine noted in its amusing history of selfies, the addition of a front-facing camera to the iPhone 4 in 2010 was the ignition starter of the selfie explosion. It turned the phone into a hand mirror where millions could behold themselves and share the gift of me. Needless to say, I was not the easiest person to get along with. In fact, I wondered that my friends put up with me at all. Like so many guys, I thought that a good conversation meant 
holding forth about all the supposedly important things I knew. Books, history, politics, whatever. But I wasn't just aggressively certain of myself, though of course I never let anyone finish a sentence and delivered my opinions as if they'd come direct from Sinai. I was also oblivious to the feelings of the people around me. A bulldozer stuck in overdrive because it never occurred to me to imagine how things might look from someone else's point of view. Emma struck up a friendship with a girl named Harriet Smith. Harriet was docile, ignorant, and naive, a worshipful younger friend who flattered Emma's vanity in every way. She was also very pretty. Short, plump, and fair, with a fine bloom, blue eyes, light hair, and a look of great sweetness. And that gave Emma an idea. Those soft blue eyes and all those natural graces, she thought, should not be wasted. Harriet wanted only a little more knowledge and elegance to be quite perfect. And so, like Henry Higgins sizing up Eliza Doolittle, Emma decided to turn her friend into a project. She would improve her and introduce her into good society. She would form her opinions and her manners. It would be an interesting and certainly a very kind undertaking, highly becoming her own situation in life. And now, without further ado, I'd like to offer a warm welcome to my special guest, Sean Pratt. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on, Sean. So, to get started, just to let you know, we have a few people waiting to talk with you in the queue. Great. So they're reviewing the scripts right now, and for anybody else who'd like to call in, we do encourage you to do so. Uh, the scripts are available at talkboxradio.com forward slash scripts. So, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, your acting training, and uh, how the training and acting has helped you with audiobook narration and why you chose this path of nonfiction audiobook narration. That's like a mouthful, right? But Yeah, there's, there's a story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma City and um, started doing theater in school when I was a wee tot. And uh, by the time I graduated high school, I'd done lots of plays and singing and dancing and things, and I knew this was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an actor, and I wanted to do theater. So I went off to uh, the College of Santa Fe in New Mexico to get my BFA, and it was in my last semester there that we were sort of introduced to the classics, and I studied as part of a semester. I studied over in London at the British American Drama Academy with some really fine, fine British uh, teachers, and it cemented my desire to go into classical theater. So after graduation, I went off to New York to start my theater career and began working in uh, medium uh, to large regional theaters around the country doing classics. That's all I really wanted to do. I wasn't interested at that time in movies or television or audiobooks. I didn't even know what those were. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, eventually I was a uh, became a company member with the Pearl Theater, which is a classical theater off Broadway that has uh, an acting company. And so for five years, I was the resident male juvenile. So I got to play all the young prince roles, all the young lover parts, which was great training. And um, sometimes people ask me, where did I get my master's degree? And I don't have one, uh, but I jokingly and 
well, somewhat serious, I say, well, I got my master's doing repertory theater at the Pearl, where you do eight shows a week and rehearse the next show of the season at the same time for months on end. And that was an excellent training ground. And it was during one of the... Yeah, experience is the best teacher. No, experience oh, is the best. It's the best teacher. So go on. I know. Yeah, by by far. It, you know, I was having a wonderful opportunity to work with some amazing actors and directors, and and working with classics, not just Shakespeare, but Sophocles and Aristophanes and Shaw and and Marivaux and Moliere and all these wonderful playwrights. And and so, um, it was during. It was around 1994. I went down to Washington, D.C. to the Shakespeare Theater there to do a play. And um, early on in the rehearsal process, we were doing Henry IV, Parts 1 and 2. And during the rehearsal process, one day in the green room, I was trying to – it was a big cast, and we were all trying to get to know each other. And I went over to this one kid, and I said, well, so what do you do when you're not working, as actors always ask each other. And he said, I narrate audiobooks. And I said, that's a really interesting, cool thing. What is that about? So David and I sat down over a cup of coffee, and he sort of filled me in. It was just a, you know, I wasn't really interested. I was busy working, you know, doing lots of theater. And then when I wasn't doing theater, I was a carpenter still. That's how I got through college. I was a house framer and then a cabinet maker. And uh, I sort of went to the Harrison Ford School of Acting on that, in that part of it anyway. And uh, so he told me about it. And it was really, it really was a great conversation. And he said, well, you know, if you ever find yourself down here in Washington, D.C., for if you're going to move here or something, or in the area, give me a call, and I can introduce you to some people. And sure enough, two years later, I did move down to D.C., and I, um, I gave him a call, and he introduced me to a gentleman named Grover Gardner. And Grover is an icon in the audiobook world. He uh, has done well over a 1,000 books. He's an amazing, amazing narrator. And so... David set up this meeting between Grover and I, and I came over to his house in Washington. I was living just across the river in Alexandria at the time. And Grover sort of gave me the rundown, the real skinny on the industry. And I I came away from that meeting with a couple of uh, big ideas. The first one was, here's a guy who's an actor who works at home, who works when he wants to work, who gets paid well Mm -hmm. to work as a performer doing audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And... We had cut a little demo, and he said he'd chop it around, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how to do this yet, but I'm going to learn. Because by that time in my career, when I moved down to D.C. in 96, I was I was pretty much done with theater. I'd been doing repertory theater for, I don't know, seven, eight years, and it was just grueling uh, after a mm-hmm. while. It was a great experience, but you know, it was like boot camp forever, it felt like. And um, I was ready for something new, and this was the new thing I wanted. And so... Um, I, I joke that you know, Grover's a good friend of mine now, and uh, but I always tell him if he had realized what was about to happen to him yeah. after our meeting, he probably should have thrown me off of his porch because <laughs> I, I broke every rule of etiquette that I teach my students about <laughs> business etiquette and protocol. I called him like three times a week. I would just happen to be by his house with a bottle of scotch, like, hi, I was in the neighborhood. You want some... 20-year-old, you know, scotch, hi. And I just pestered and cajoled and bullied and and whatever I could do. And finally, out of desperation, <laughs> he called uh, Books on Tape, which is uh, based in California in, in Los Angeles, and Blackstone Audio, which is up in uh, Portland, Oregon. 
And he said, oh, for the love of God, please send me something for this guy. He's driving me insane. And that was how it started. Um, I started narrating uh, my, you know, uh, right out of the shoot for major publishers, which, of course, would never have happened today. I mean, the world is it's 20 years ago, and the world's totally changed. Um, but, uh, but even with all the preparation that I had done to prepare myself for that first session, um, you know, uh, I had blocked out three hours of time in one of the studios that Grover's Grover ran, and I had a monitor, which was a person who sat outside the booth and followed along. And and how it works when you work at home um, by yourself, you wear four hats at once. You're the narrator narrating the material. You are the director directing yourself and doing the research and so on. You're the engineer actually recording the piece itself using a remote control device and your microphone. You're in the booth by yourself, and the equipment is outside the booth. And then finally, you're the producer. You've got to make it come in on time. And so so the, for that first session, um, the monitor was outside following along, and like I said, I'd scheduled three hours of time to start recording this book. And in three hours of work, I recorded exactly – 15 minutes of material <laughs> hmm. and it was uh, one of the most stressful events of my entire life in fact I when we were done I I drove back to uh, the house I was living in with my girlfriend at the time and um, uh, so I, I walk in drop my bag flop on the floor stare up at the ceiling and she sort of stands over me and she goes are you okay and I look up at her and I said, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. What have I done? <laughs> and uh, but but the, I went back. It was, the, it, yeah, it was the stress of the other people that made it harder for you to focus and. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Deliver and the then, goods. And then just running the equipment. I mean, everything. There's, it's like suddenly, yeah. you know, maybe you've been juggling two balls, but now they want you to juggle six. And so, but what were you? But in the in the studio, were you just reading, or were you doing the juggling in the studio? <laughs> well, you are metaphorically doing the juggling because, you know, back then, and, and this is the old days of tape, the ADAT tape system, which some of your listeners yes. might know. Um, yes. You know, you had a little shuttle, a little uh, remote control that was in the booth, so you had, you know, stop, start, fast forward, reverse, yeah. uh, record, and so on. So you would. The way the recording works, of course, is an additive process on tape, so it's called punch and roll. So you start recording, and then you screw up and you stop. Then you rewind the tape a bit, hit play, listen to yourself, and then in a pause before that mistake, you hit record. And so you punch into the recording, and then you roll forward and record over the mistake. So – you just—it's like yeah, I always the metaphor I like or the visual analog is like putting together a train, you know, car by car, and then yeah. eventually you get to the end, and that becomes chapter five or whatever. And so, um, so you there's you know it's not just you walking in the studio to read the material and someone takes care of all that and directs you. No, you're all four of those hats wearing all four of those hats at once. Wow. And it it can be it's yeah and that's why you know and uh, I've listened to, I was listening to some of your other uh, podcasts with some of your other people on here and I've had discussions with colleagues who do commercial video or cartoons or video games and so on and I have to tell them I'm like this kind of voiceover is fundamentally it lives in its own universe 
would for no other reason than that you are recording the entire thing by yourself. Right. And there's you know so if you're one of these performers that absolutely mm. can't even scratch their nose without a director working with you, you're not going to make it. Um. The uh, so I it, to, yeah I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to ask you a question about because on one of your YouTube videos you you talk about reading three hours every day and also you have to be prepared to be in a vocal booth I think something like you know eight hours a day in a vocal right. booth. I'd like to know how you handle that. Um, I mean, it's kind of like being in a spaceship, right? I mean, you're all by yeah. yourself in a vocal booth for eight hours. I mean, um, how do well, you do that? Things, well, let's see. There's a lot of things to unpack there. Well, first of all, yeah, um, it, it takes stamina. It takes mental stamina. But I tell people all the time, performers, and I get inundated you know, all the time with emails from people, from literal English speakers from – quite literally around the world, which is always such an amazing world. You know, what a great century we live in with technology like this. Yeah. Um, I have students in, in Australia and in Canada and the U.K. and in, in South America, and, you know, and we meet on Skype and work together, and what a wonderful world we live in. Um, but anyway, so I tell people when they're asking me about whether or not they might be right to get into this, I tell them that, you know, talent is actually not the final arbiter of whether or not you're going to be able to do this. It's really temperament. Do you have the temperament to sit by yourself and work and puzzle through all the issues that are each book presents? Can you sit in that small space? I have friends who are amazing actors, voice talents or theater actors or film actors, and they come to me as like, I would rather take a beating than sit in that booth as long as you do day in, day out. Now, of course... I don't stay in it eight hours a day. I actually, you know, for me now, I only I have two hours in the morning and two hours in the late afternoon. I teach in the middle of the day, but even so, that's four hours a day, six to seven days a week, depending on the schedule for the book. But the reason I made the video on my YouTube channel, if you if they go to my YouTube channel, which is just Sean Pratt, you'll find me. There's a, a video titled "So You Want to Be an Audiobook Narrator," and I made that video and I explain in the video itself. It was sort of for my own my own sanity because after I became established in the industry, I would go to parties and networking events and other performers or just people would find out that I narrated books and they would sort of, you know, grab me by the collar and sit me down and say, tell me everything you know about this industry. I want to do it. And of course, being an actor, you love talking about yourself. So you're like, Oh yeah, sure. And so you, I'd spend half an hour talking with these people, you know, Ma, me, 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 or whatever. And then I realized, you know, I'd say, well, if you want any more information, call me. Maybe we can work together. And no one would ever call. And then I realized I was not meeting the people I wanted to meet or spending time answering emails and so on. So it was it was eating up my time. So I made this little video. And the short the short version for your listeners is I tell people, if you're interested in doing this, set up a table and a chair in a confined space, like a closet or an alcove, a small room. If you don't have one of those, make the table face into the corner of the room. Um, <laughs> get a book you like, right? Okay. Uh, put it on a music stand or a book stand. Shine a light on it. Turn off all the lights. So that's the only source mm -hmm. of illumination. And then mm -hmm. sit down and read out loud for two to three hours a day for two weeks straight. And don't just mumble your way through it. Read it like you're reading it to someone. And if you stumble over a sentence, stop, back up, start again. If you hit a word or a phrase or a person that you don't know how to pronounce, stop, go look it up. 
and then you know um you have to you have to put it in um uh what am i trying to say you have to perform it for someone you have to maintain that energy and i tell them that if you can do that for 14 straight days you are in the zone that you might be able to do this and i found over the years that it eliminates about 99% of the emails i get from people or inquiries and every so often i'll even get an email from someone and they'll say, Sean, I went to the YouTube channel and I took the test and you've absolutely positively convinced me that I never, ever want to do this for a living. <laughs> and you say, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. So, well, you know, I feel like you, I've done yeah, my job as a, as a coach, as a teacher. Care, how, how do you take care of your voice? How do you yeah, protect your voice, keep that stamina up so you avoid vocal fatigue, vocal dryness? Boy, that's um. Let's see. I I have a little. I have a brew. I cook up every day of tea. I have throat coat tea and peppermint tea. I mix together, and um, mm-hmm. or lemon zinger tea. Um, I also I don't. I, you know, there's a lot of people we meet in show business who have these voices made of iron, and um, you know they can just talk and talk and talk, and. Um, uh, and their voice never gets tired. I don't have that kind of voice. So I husband my voice throughout the day. And um, so I rec- that's why I say I record for two hours in the morning. And then I go off for about two or three hours and I run errands or go to the gym or whatever. But I don't talk unless I have to. And then in the afternoon I teach. And do you, I know. Do you, do, you carry, oh, do you carry a sign with that, you that says, yeah. do not uh, talk to me. I am resting. I cannot talk to you. <laughs> and um uh That's a good excuse if you don't want to talk to people, right? Not talking yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean unless absolutely you know, it's like a yes no kind of thing or a grunt. Yeah. You know. And um so then I because I teach in the afternoon and then by the time three o'clock rolls around I'm mentally and vocally tired. So I crash. I go to sleep for about forty five minutes, get up, have some coffee and uh get back in there for my afternoon session. And um, the uh, um, um, so, so you know during the day I, I I talk as little as possible when I'm not working, and uh, I don't shout. <laughs> I never shout unless absolutely you know yeah. uh, it'll blow my cords out. And also you have to learn. This is something I, I teach uh, my students is that if you can, it's important to try to narrate during the sweet spots of your day. We all have those moments throughout the day where we're really firing on all pistons, you know, mentally, vocally, physically, everything's on. And if you can, those are the optimum times to be narrating. Um, you know, it's tougher We're like when, when our kids were little, trying to find time to, you know, you're dealing with daycare and picking up kids at school and all sorts of things and rehearsal. Time to do anything. Yeah, time to do anything. Yeah. Let's get real yeah. here. So that and, was a good excuse for not talking. I'm not kids. I'm not talking right now. <laughs> yeah. They, well, you know. No, they, there's no to- no talking. Yeah. No talking. Yeah, Our ahead. kids grew up in the in the green room or on set, <laughs> and then as we transitioned, as my wife Shannon and I transitioned into more and more um, audio books over time, you know, now we just live and work, you know, and and when you work at home, every day is casual Friday, and. Uh, so, you know, we stroll in and, 
you know, we go to work in our in our pajamas some days if we need to. And uh, um, but you know, we live in this little box where we talk, and it is an odd thing I think for for a child to grow up around. But we've always worked. We've always been freelance performers. So, and I think it's a sort of a nice thing to show our kids that you can pursue your dream if you're focused enough and determined, and willing to you know to really uh, make a few sacrifices and and uh, and and pursue your dream. I think that's a good lesson that we've imparted to our kids. Um, that that is that is good. It's good that you can share that also in your with your wife. Um, what? Just another question of how do you deal? What if a if you're because we're talking about being in this vocal booth for hours at a time, what is it that could get in someone's way mentally, and how do you overcome that? Oh, that's what, a great question. What, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, everything can get in your way. I mean, you uh-huh. have out. You know, the first thing is, and I'm sure you've had other guests talk about this, is that when you have a booth at home. There is a misnomer that the general public has about a sound booth. They think it is soundproof, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it's designed, you know, the 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 space you create for your sound, even if it's a standalone booth you buy. But if you build one, like the, the current booth I have is not a booth. It's a it's in the corner of a room. Um, if uh, if your listeners want to go to my Facebook page, Sean Pratt presents. In my little avatar photograph area is the actual picture of what my studio looks right now. It's in the corner of a room. And what they can't see is there's a big, huge, heavy curtain that wraps around the backside of it from the ceiling, and that closes it off and creates its own space. But even then, every single booth, the first thing is is that you're going to get outside noises no matter what. You're going to get low-frequency noise through the house or an airplane or a truck. And then, so the outside is designed, if you give it thick enough, if you place it correctly... The outside will keep most of that out. The inside, with all the foam and, and, and stuff, is really only to t- make the space. The term that I've learned was you make it sonically dry, meaning there's no what they call room tone. There's no butterfly echo from the walls. There's no, you know, you don't hear any uh, HVAC noise or anything like that. So you're really isolating the, the sound of your voice alone. And so... So you're dealing with noise all the time that happens around you, um, and then you know then you have things in the booth that can bother you. Like if you I don't know I don't know about you, but I you know I, my my joints snap and crack all the time, or I belch or whatever. And then you have mental issues. You know if you've had a fight with your spouse, or you're trying to remember, oh my God, I've got to go pick up the laundry when I do that thing, and that all you, that's all it takes to throw you off your game. You know, you can't you get into. What, yeah, you have what to learn. What do you do it, about that? You have to learn to. Well, for me, I meditate. I get yeah. into this state of being called flow, where I just, you know, okay. I I I focus. It's a it's a concept that a man, a psychologist, from Chicago. His name is um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He's a Hungarian psychologist in Chicago. He came up with the term. It's when it's that moment that we all have when we're doing something that we love to do, that we're really good at doing, and it requires high-level mm-hmm. mental functions, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And when we get mm-hmm. into and then suddenly time sort of stops, you know, or, or it flies by, rather, mm-hmm. that we, you know, we're in that state of absolute focus. And so the, the idea is I've learned enough tricks to get myself to that place 99% of the time or 95% of the time. And then 
I'm off and running. But there's one last there's one last thing that will screw you up, and you can't control it. And that's when you get a poorly written or edited book. You know, um, it's it's absolutely maddening. It's it's like the analogy I like to draw is like if you were let's say you learn, you you knew how to read music and were playing a piano, and so like every Every measure, every cross the page, you'd be like going bum, 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 bink. And you hit that one note that's been written incorrectly on the staff. So you have to stop and rewrite it. Then you have to start again. And you get a little bit further in and then doink. And you're like, oh, God. And you. So imagine doing that hundreds of times potentially in a book. And not necessarily a misedit, like a word's missing. Sometimes the writing is clunky. Sometimes they've added words. You know, sometimes you're dealing with an author who's like, editor, pff, I don't need an editor. And you're like, yeah, yeah, you do, buddy. And it's it, it's absolutely maddening. It's uh, So you should be doing I, – I just wanted to say, before we go on, I just wanted to tell you how great a job you do with your, your audio books. I just – I love the demos you sent me. And um, I really disagree with you on one thing. I think you should be doing some fiction too, because you are funny with well, the characters. Well, thank I mean, you. you're doing different voices. It's entertaining. Why not? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I when I first started narrating, uh, way back in the Stone Age, it seems, um, I I was ma- it was mainly fiction, almost exclusively. But then I realized uh-huh. very quickly, and I only had two clients at that time: I had Books on Tape and Blackstone. But I realized. Um, even though I, the term was not in vogue then, uh, have you heard of the term called the ten thousand hour rule? It's no, a, but I but I have now. You're going to tell yeah. us about it right well, now. Well, Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in one of his books called Outliers, and uh, the, the, basically the the ten thousand hour rule means that if you want to become a master of something, it takes mm-hmm. ten thousand ten thousand hours of deliberate practice doing it. You know. Um, so every hour you spend, you know, in that booth is one hour closer to becoming a master of it or, and no matter what, whether it's kayaking or quilting or whatever, the longer you spend, mm-hmm. the more knowledge you get, the more experience you have. Okay. So, yeah. um, when I started, I realized I needed to record as much as possible to get to 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 become a narrator, I knew, I realized that you know doing one maybe one book a month or two books a month was not enough. So I called them up, both of the the offices there, and I said, "Listen, I will narrate anything that nobody else wants." <laughs> I said, "Do you have a two volume history of bread and wheat? I'll do it. I don't care. Send it over." And they took me up on it. So I did a lot of you know sort of lame you know B B level or C level fiction. And, badly um, written, badly, badly written, written, but that's badly good. Written. I, you know, I, yeah. I tell my, I tell my the students, I like, <laughs> listen, it ain't all Shakespeare. It can't be. Yeah. And um, okay. so, I, uh, so, I was, I was just nagging and nagging and nagging, and then one day, and this is back in the day when they would mail you the book, <laughs> right? They'd mail you the book and the tapes you were to record it on. So when you were done, you mailed all that back to them, and then they would, you know, get ready to process it on their end so mm-hmm. one morning this large box arrived on my doorstep and it was from books on tape and the casting director i opened it up um it was a five volume history of the state of california each of those books clocked in at about 30 hours it was a 150 hour long project 
and she had a note. She said, this will keep you from calling me for a while. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it did because it took me the rest of the year on and off to record that entire mm-hmm. series. And it, thank God it was, it was well-written. But I learned so much about research. I learned so much about sustaining a performance. It was exhausting. Uh, but I, I you've learned so, you wa- you learned a lot of you learned a lot about California also. Oh yeah, I, you, you, listen, I know more about the state of California <laughs> than just about. Well, that's one of the cool <laughs> things about nonfiction. And that's the other thing that's really cool about nonfiction. You see, unlike I mean, I like fiction. Don't get me wrong; I still do it on occasion. So people, if they if they look up my name on Audible dot com, they're going to find some fiction that I've done recently. I don't do a lot of it because now nonfiction is my niche. But what I one of the many things I love about nonfiction is that um, I'm always learning something, you know. I'm just, I just wrapped a book today, uh, it's sort of this doom and gloom book, like how the economy is going to go to hell in a handbasket <laughs> next year. But I'm learning about what are the hot new markets for investment worldwide. And that's really mm. – not that I had the money to do that, but it's really interesting. Or I just finished a book about the science of cooking. What happens on a molecular level when you put, you know, sugar in water or when you heat an egg? It was really interesting. And so what's nice is I, I can make people believe at a cocktail party that I know a little bit about everything. So, <laughs> you know, at least until the third drink comes and then it's, it's anybody's guess. So, so that's so one how, of the reasons. I mean, if you're, yeah, if you're reading like something really bad or boring, I mean, do you, do you get to pick and choose? I mean uh, – and if you don't pick and choose, if it's really boring and dull, how do you cope with that mentally? Let's well, say you have to spend. Yeah. Well, I went through that phase a long time ago when I was taking all comers. You know, I was cranking through material just because once you get started, it's like you want to get more clients. You're just being a smart business person. You know, you. Mm-hmm. So then I added this company and that company and this company and that company to and so between all of those little companies sending me a couple of books each suddenly i was working full time as a narrator and um and so yeah there was a lot of you know lousy material i and boring and poorly written material that i i worked through but now i'm lucky that i'm i'm in this sort of you know now that i hit when i hit 6 7 8 900 books um, publishers are sending me A-list nonfiction, so it's always well written. Wow! Um, so, so I'm yeah, lucky. I'm very, so you, very grateful for that. Well, but you're very, very talented too, and I think that this is the beginning of your audio book about yourself. This show. This is, <laughs> I mean, the way you're, you're just so interesting to listen to. Uh, so did I my mom, did my mom call oh, you and then tell you to say that? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> So, so um what I yeah I is I want to make sure we have time to get to the callers. I don't want to cut you off of from your thoughts. Yeah, yeah it's just I would like you to just now tell people how they can contact you and let's spell out your name. I can do that. Sean S <laughs> E A N Pratt P R A double T. Okay, right. so would you give out people give, sure, give absolutely. people your contact um, information, Facebook, et cetera? Okay. Right. So you can uh my website is called SeanPrattPresents.com, and it should be up and running next week. Uh we had a, a the site crashed unfortunately, it got hacked uh by some mean Ooh. people. So the my web lady is, is busy uh revamping it and it should be up next week. Yeah. Um but you can also find me on Facebook if you type in Sean Pratt Presents. And follow my exploits there about what classes I'm doing. 
when I have a new event, I always put it up there. Um, so, and you can also follow me on uh, Twitter. Um, my handle is SP Presents. It's all one word. And uh, you can uh, I tweet about the, the projects I'm working on, both professionally and as a teacher. And then finally, although I haven't posted a, a video in a while, I have a lot of videos of sort of uh, about the business of show business in general and a few on narration, which you can find if you just type my name, Sean Pratt, into YouTube. And if you'd Good. like to contact me, um, my, my business email is seanpratt at comcast.net. And I would tell people who might be listening, if you've never narrated, or even if you're a VO talent who's done, you know, 30 to 60 second radio spots or even other kinds of uh, like e-learning and so on, I tell, I tell everyone, go take the test. Just make sure. Don't spend a dime until you spend a little of your time seeing if this is really right for you. Because it really and is. The I, test, where, yeah, where is the test located? The so? test is on, is on my YouTube channel. And it's called So You Want to Be an Audiobook Narrator. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a it's sort of a you know, for some people it's a big bucket of cold water. Other people it just lights a fire under them. I've had I've had students who started out, mm. you know, like, Hey, I'm a theater actor here in Chicago and I I saw your video and I'm like, Oh good, we'll take the test and if you take the test and pass, give me a holler and then a few months later they're like, I did it and so okay, and then one thing sort of leads to another. But I can tell you as a teacher, um, I, not only do I only narrate nonfiction, I mean, I do 50 books a year. I do a book a week. And 45 of those easily are nonfiction. And so that's also what I teach. That's my niche as a teacher. And I normally don't take beginning narrators or people who've never narrated before because what I teach, this goes all the way back to the my experience as a classical theater actor, is that when you're working in the classics, it's, it's all about deconstructing the text, about tearing it apart and looking at its form, its structure. And that's what you mm-hmm. have to do in nonfiction, which is why most people, when they listen to nonfiction, they go, why is this so boring? And it's because the narrator did not get deep enough into understanding the construct of the actual intellectual argument of the, the author. Um, yeah. I was going to say, do you want me to talk about the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Yes, you can do that, but I just wanted to say that in your uh, me, myself, and I, that mm-hmm. little bit I have on there, I mean, it's amazing how you go in and out of different moods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And you're definitely employing this technique you're talking about. I mean, you go into it deeply. You understand the concept, the feeling. It's all acting. Yes, it right? is. I mean, act, yeah. acting as believing not acting as pretending or reading superficially, but really oh, yeah. getting deeply into it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the problem that happens with see in fiction. Well, first of all, the, the purpose of an audiobook is always to be entertaining. That's its number one job. All right. Hmm. So okay. that fits that fits well with fiction because a piece of written fiction, its job is to be entertaining, right? We want to be entertained. That's why we read fiction. Yeah. So, so and then. To do that, the writer create uses all these storytelling tools that then are passed down to the narrator, such as, well, it's fiction, so it's whatever they think of, whatever genre. Then they have their own plots, plot devices, characters, accents, dialogue, and so on to tell the story, mm-hmm. to keep us entertained. That's great, right? So you've got like 50 tools in your story about telling 
toolbox now as a narrator. But over here in nonfiction, you've got a lot. You have a you have a problem because the purpose of a piece mm-hmm. of written nonfiction, its job is to educate or inform. Mm-hmm. That's what the written piece is is meant to do. So now the first issue is fundamentally is you have to repurpose this thing to do something else. Now it's like taking um, it's like mm-hmm. taking a four door sedan and turning it into a pickup truck. You have to repurpose mm-hmm. it to be to do the job it's supposed to do. So, and and wh- how that manifests itself is you have narrators. Some of them are very good in the world of fiction, but if you tell them they're going to be doing nonfiction, what they hear is non acting. Mm-hmm. So that's the first obstacle that hits. So they think, well, I'm just telling facts and figures, and it's not facts and figures. There's a right. story there, okay. and you have, and it takes a particular. It's not very complicated, but once you because once you understand it, it, it's very straightforward. But you've got to understand the there's an in, there's a paradigm shift that you have to make with nonfiction to make it actable. So the first the first obstacle that narrators run into is they think there's no acting involved. Then as a consequence mm-hmm. of that, what happens is, and I was listening to. Um, Oh, I was listening to one of your uh, other previous interviews, and you had a, a voiceover uh, director on, a casting director, I think, and she was talking about melody, and the melody of the of the read. And so, what happens mm-hmm. in um, w- when you approach the material that way? It's sort of shallow and unfocused. You don't have, uh, you're not really looking deeply into the material. And so, what happens is, it's like. Um, it's like going into a forest that doesn't have a path in it. So if you're trying to find your way through the forest, mm-hmm. you're literally walking from tree to tree. Okay, you're sort of meandering. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the tree to tree really is you means you're just making sense of each sentence as you say it. And what that does mm-hmm. is it sets up a repetitive melody and rhythm. So you start the sentence and you hit the operative word here and there, and then you finish. And then you start the next word and then hit that thing and that thing and then you finish. And it's the same melody every time until you come to the end. And it's the same rhythm and the same tempo. And what in the effect happens is that metronomic read starts to lull the listener because it's the same. And the ear's not hearing anything. It's like listening to Philip Glass. If you're not a fan of I mean, I like Philip Glass, but if you, if you don't like him, all of Philip Glass's music sounds absolutely repetitive. All right? Um, and so the the last step is if that's the case they the narrator makes a he they commit the cardinal sin of they make everything sound important they give everything the same amount of emotional weight and when you make everything sound important nothing is important it has you know you know there's no differentiation between you know this life or death moment or when you turn around and talk about drinking a cup of coffee because it all the mel- the melody is the exact same the tempo is the same the intensity is the same so we have all mm-hmm. these obstacles that grow they they just start from the fact that the narrator goes oh there's no acting here i'm just reading it and then as consequence yeah. that's why when most people listen to nonfiction they they hate it because it sounds boring and it is boring frankly If it's read like that, read without well, a lot of it is read like that, unfortunately, <laughs> you know that's why you have you have uh, um, uh, <laughs> well you you do you you know you, you like i said it's it, it, there's no one there what, what they here's the term, and i know i I know that this has been on your show when they say we want a quote conversational read, you hear that all the time in voiceover, 
And so really what it's about is how do you – what's the backstory you need to go through to do a conversational read, right? How do you get to that place? And so what I, what I practice and what I teach is a concept I call the TED Talk. So in short, what it means is when I do a book, like let's say this doom and gloom book I, I just wrapped this morning. Um, so when I do it, there's, there's three things that I have to – so I become the author in the book, okay? And I, having written a book myself, I know that you know, writing a book is a labor of love. It's a labor of sustained intensity over time. You really have to believe in what you're putting down on paper because you're spending all this time doing it. And so the backstory is that I let's yeah. say I'm, let's say I wake up one morning and I'm an, you know an economist or whatever and I say I'm going to write this book because people need to know that they've got to get their act together and sell off these stocks because the world's going to come to an end tomorrow and so I start writing <laughs> this book you know okay. and every you know when I have chance you know 15 minutes here 45 minutes there I'm working on this book I'm sending out outlines to publishers they're all turning me down you know but I don't care I have fire in the belly and I work 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 on this thing and then you know, months and months pass, and then finally, um, a publisher says yes. Let's just say, for the sake of the argument, it's Random House, and they call me up and say, "Hey, Sean, this is fantastic. We think this this book will really resonate with, you know, uh, you know, middle American investors, and and they'll really snap this thing up. So we're going to publish it. Fantastic. So we finish the book. The book is published. This is all backstory, by the way. So the book gets published. And the, the reviews come out, and it's a hit. It's like a New York Times bestseller hit. And so all of the work, all the blood, sweat, and tears I put into that project as the author have now paid off in spades, right? Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, they call me once again, the publisher, and says, Hey, Sean, um, do you know what uh, a TED Talk is? And for your listeners who don't know, TED is an acronym, which means Technology, Entertainment, and Design. These are little 20-minute talks that these experts do on their field of, of uh, study, and they're all over YouTube. I watch them constantly. Yep. I think they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so they say, yeah, and I say, yeah, I know what a TED Talk is. And they said, well, they're doing one on the upcoming, you know, what's, what's 2017, what's the economic future of 2017 looks like. That's the theme of the, talk, the TED Talk conference. And they saw your book, and they would love for you to come and do a TED Talk based around part of your book. Would you like to do it? And I'm like, yes, I would. So, you know, a month later, there I am. And I, when I walk on that stage in New York with my funny little microphone that they taped to the side of my face and my nice new clothes, um, I walk out on that stage and I have three things that I have to be and do. I have to be enthusiastic, which means I have to bring the enthusiasm that I worked on the book with me onto that stage. I have to be engaging, which means my ideas have to be thought-provoking. And then most of all, I have to be entertaining. Remember that, remember that word? Entertaining. Yes. Right? I do remember that. Yes. And, if I don't, if I'm, and, and if I do those three things, I'm going to educate my audience. But if I'm really good, I will enlighten my audience. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's a different level of understanding about a topic. Right, so I have to do those three things to elicit those other two, right? Enthusiasm, um, engagement, and entertaining, to educate and then hopefully enlighten my audience. So, so in my mind's eye, when I sit down to to record that book, 
in my mind's eye, I'm actually walking into that large auditorium. It's full of people who all want to know. They're all on the edge of their seats waiting for me Hmm. to speak. They're an engaged, accepting audience. Mm -hmm. And they want to hear what I have to share. And so uh, then if if I can put myself in that place as an actor emotionally in my mind's eye, the magic what if, something fundamentally changes with the words on the page. It stops being text to be read aloud and becomes, in effect, the transcript of my TED Talk. So when you were mm-hmm. listening to that selfie piece, the one you played earlier and one you listened to, yes, I was giving, mm-hmm. I was, I wasn't necessarily giving a TED talk about selfies. I was, I was taking the idea and I tweaked it. I was up in front of a group of people from Vanity Fair because that's who it was written for, readers of Vanity Fair, and I was sort of doing sort of a stand-up comedy kind of routine. But there's always those three elements: who am I, who is the audience specifically, and what is the lo- what is the locale, the location where I would be, so that the words on that page would actually be the transcript of what I said. So, so, um, and then and then uh, the one you played after that, the Jane Austen education, that little snippet. Yeah. That wasn't a TED talk. What I was doing there, that was me doing a one-man show in a theater. It could, because it's really a memory play. The whole book is just a, a memoir of when he was a younger man and him discovering Jane Austen as a writer. So I did it like, you know, I came, it was a one-man show. I came out there in my mind's eye to a small theater house, and there was a chair and a, and a phone booth and a, and a bookcase or whatever, and it's all direct address into the audience. So I'm never just reading text. I'm, I am performing it in my mind's eye. I'm talking to a group of people who want to know about me and Jane Austen or me and the lousy economy. There's never so – I'm never it, reading to yeah, that ha- You transcend the small booth you're in then. Yeah, it totally goes away. Yeah, right. So shall we – Take the first caller. Are you, yeah, are sure. you down with that now? Or yeah, I don't let's, let's get a victim up here. Your... <laughs> okay. this, we have Kat from San Antonio, Texas, who has been waiting very patiently, and Nancy from Utah, hang in there. We also have Rich from Tucson, Arizona. They're all going to be waiting. They're all waiting to talk to you. So we're going to bring on Kat right now. Kat, are you there? I sure am. Hello? Oh, great. Hello, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, just talk close up to the phone if you can. That'd be really Surely. super, super stellar. That's good. We want to hear you. <laughs> so what would you like to read for Sean? I'm going to read the uh, excerpt from uh, Stuffology. Okay, okay, sure. That's great. sample number four. Okay, great. All right. Um, oh, before we get our, are we gonna before you do? Are are no. should we have the callers read the entire sample or part of it or what do you want? Well, to yeah, do this on? this one these are these are not very long and yes they do need to read right, uh, the the whole sample because unlike you know radio spots, um, you know you, it takes a little bit of time for the story to unwind itself, and so yeah okay. so so please yes let's go ahead and okay unwind unwind away unwind away <laughs> now we All have cat right. unwinding oh here we go stuffology by brenda avadian and eric riddle what is clutter the stuff we think we'll need someday often gets in the way and this is what we call clutter whether physical clutter or mental It's the stuff we trip over while we're trying to get to what we need. The magazines we're currently reading are not clutter. 
whereas the growing piles of back issues that we're trying to find the time to read are clutter. The boxes and overstuffed shelves of seasonal decorations in the garage are not clutter. Until our fingertips freeze while scraping the ice off the windshield of our car parked outside. Hundreds of emails flooding our inboxes that await our reply are clutter. Not being able to play a game of pool because it takes a half day to move the piles of stuff off the pool table are clutter. My husband's tools are clutter. My wife's collection of baby clothes is clutter. Your married child's stuff still in your home is clutter. Feeling overwhelmed after overscheduling our lives is clutter. Too much noise is clutter. Being stuck and not knowing why we're holding on to something adds to the clutter. Just because is not a good enough reason to hold on. Oh, and finding $100,000 between two books on a living room shelf is definitely not <laughs> clutter. <laughs> okay, Yay, good. good. Nice job. Good Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so now let's 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 get our context right. This is a perfect TED Talk kind of uh, setting. Okay, Kat. So, yep. Um, so this is and this is the opening of the book, right? This is the 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 the, the opening uh, 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 chapter one of the book, and so just like they do in a good TED Talk, a smart presenter will come out swinging with some jokes, which is what we have here. There's lots of fun. It's, it's funny in here, okay? So you're laying out the concept of what is clutter in the opening, okay? And then you start getting into details of what is clutter, what is clutter, this is clutter, and that is clutter, right? Um, so let's see here. Now, we have this repetition of the phrase, our clutter, right? Yeah. So the, the our clutter part um, it can take care of itself because the repetition in the ear, we, once we hear it again and again, we recognize it. So it's all about the, the what is the front half of the sentence. So you say, hundreds, this thing is clutter, that thing, or these things are clutter, these things are clutter. And so you can almost throw the clutter part away because um, the repetition will, will, will still hear it, okay? Um, uh-huh. Let's see here. So the the first real joke we get is sort of when our fingertips freeze while scraping off ice in the car parked outside. That's the first sort of joke. So make it sound a little more like a joke by throwing it away a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Okay? You know what I mean by throwing it away? Yeah, it's kind of uh, like tossing it off your shoulder kind of. Right. So there's a – and what happens is the boxes and overstuffed shelves of seasonal decorations in the garage are not clutter than take a beat – and a breath, and then throw the like until the fingertips freeze, and we're you know blah 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 blah. That's the joke, right? <laughs> yeah. Then, okay. So then, what happens is we have this repetition of the clutter thing, and to help us with it, because each one sort of gets a little more uh, over, not overwrought, a little more outrageous. So when by the time you get to the second paragraph where it says starting with my wife's collection, start getting through those a little faster. There's nothing in there that's <laughs> There's no information in that second paragraph that's essential to the plot, as it were. So you can start saying them faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until you come to the one just because it's not good enough reason to hold on. Stop. And then, oh, and that's the last one. Like, oh, and then you slow down for us. And finding all that money is not clutter because that's the payoff. Does that make sense? 
It does, and I had started to do that a little bit, but I slowed down before yeah, you, you were saw, recommending. Well, yeah, and so the, the thing you've got to realize is all that other information isn't really important, as it were. It's really just a setup for the last yeah. sentence. Okay? So would you just yeah. explain what throwing, throwing it away means, though, literally how, what you're talking sure. about? Just saying sure. it well, quickly, the, like the, not giving it much emphasis? Yes, it's it's the the short the yeah. short the short version is it needs to be low, quick, and quiet. It just has to be. It, low, it's quick, almost quiet. and and the, it comes from the fact once again, not every everything cannot have the same kind of weight. So when Cat got into that second paragraph, she was giving each of them sort of the same amount of importance. And uh-huh, okay. but you know but but you know they can't all be the thing about the baby clothes cannot be the same thing as the windshield. You just can't. You have to make a decision that some things have to be more important than the other. And so what we do naturally when we speak, if something is important, what do we do? We raise our voice, and we are more emphatic and more deliberate with what we're saying. But if it's not important or we don't think it's a good thing, we sort of drop it down and we just sort of run right through it like, oh, yeah, that thing over there, that's it. Well, I don't really want to talk about that. That's called throwing it away. The master of that, by the way, would be one of the masters is uh, when you watch Maggie Smith on uh, Downton Abbey, when she sort of talks out of the side of her mouth, she's throwing away the line. She's a, she's a master at it. Um, and so the idea is you're de- by de-emphasizing the line in a way, usually it's done because you're trying to do it for comedic effect. So there's two kinds of comedy ha- humor, I should say, happening here. The first is a throwaway line. She'll do about freezing the fingertips. And to do that, she has to take a big breath and just roll right through the sentence. The second thing she's doing for humorous effect is going faster and faster through this long list until she hits the very last bit. And the clue there is the word, oh. Like she finished the thought and then like, oh, yeah. And then she gives us the punchline. The word, oh, is a great clue to, to, to hold up and and the next part of the sentence is something important. That's that's usually a clue. So can we give Cat another chance to Absolutely. read this, and then we'll take the next then we'll take the next call. We can do whatever you want. There's, we could she could read Great. all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Cat, give it a go. Okay, Cat, right, you're more. on. All right. What is clutter? The stuff we think we'll need someday often gets in the way, and this is what we call clutter. Whether physical clutter or mental, it's the stuff we trip over while trying to get to what we need. The magazines we're currently reading are not clutter, whereas the growing piles of back issues that we're trying to find the time to read are clutter. The boxes and overstuffed shelves of seasonal decorations in the garage are not clutter, until our fingertips freeze while we're scraping the ice off the windshield of our car parked outside. Hundreds of emails flooding our inboxes that await our reply are clutter. Not being able to play a game of pool because it takes half a day to move piles of stuff off the pool table are clutter. My husband's tools are clutter. My wife's collection of baby toys is clutter. Your married child's stuff still in the home is clutter. Feeling overwhelmed after overscheduling our lives is clutter. Too much noise is clutter. Being stuck and not knowing why we're holding on to something adds to the clutter. Just because is not a good enough reason to hold on. Oh, and finding $100,000 between two books on a living room shelf is definitely not clutter. Much better. She also picked up the second joke that's in that, that paragraph about moving stuff half a day to play pool. Yeah. That's also a joke. 
right? And and when the, the thing that, you, that that's tricky is that once you learn to see the text, and you can almost you can in my head I hear it like music, then I will stay on it. And, you know, if I have to re-record that second paragraph four times to get the rhythm right without screwing up the diction. Um, I'll yeah. do it because I know that the payoff is in that last sentence. And you, after a while, you learn that's the only way it needs – that is the way it needs to be spoken because that rhythm, that tempo will make it we'll, – the payoff is at the, is at the end of the line. Kat, do you this have any awesome. other questions? Yeah. Do you have any uh, other questions for Sean before we go on to our next caller? Now, the the big question was the is clutter our clutter is clutter our clutter and he addressed that. Yeah, yeah it's very just the, good. It's the re, yeah, it's the repetition of the word, so you don't have to hit it hard because the front half of the sentence is what's unique. But very good, very good, Cat. Thank you. Very good. I like your voice. I like your voice, Cat. What did you buy do? my books? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Cat, can you tell us what you are you are you are you an audiobook narrator? I, I am indeed an audiobook narrator. I'm also a technical writer, but uh, I'm transitioning my career uh, over to the audiobooks and voiceovers. I have uh, some titles out there on Audible.com. That's uh, wonderful. Yeah. Is that so is that like how people can find it, you? But by by cat. Yeah. yeah. Is that... Cat. My last name is Lookabod. It starts with Look. If you type in Cat Look, you'll probably find me. You're good. Wonderful. Thank you. Do you have a web do you have a website address you'd like to give out, Kat? I sure do. Voiceoversbycat.com. dot com. So and just, that's uh, Kat, all the words. Kat, voiceovers. How, <laughs> Thank you for asking. Oh, sorry, C-A-T. Are, are you spell do you spell cat K A T? C A T. C A T. Okay. Correct. Thank so you for voiceovers asking. by uh, yeah, voiceoversbycat.com, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, very good. Okay, so I wish you the very best of success. And I'm going to put you back in the listening queue. And Thank we'll you. I'm enjoying the, the show. Call. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you here. And it was very good to hear you read. Okay, so I'm putting you back in, and then we're going to take the next caller, uh, who is Nancy in Utah. Nancy, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Good. So what would you like to read for Sean today? Okay. I chose a sample that I knew would give me trouble. So <laughs> I chose sample number seven. <laughs> okay. So I like that. Okay. A little adventure spirit, adventuresome spirit. I like that. Right. Yeah. There's just, you'll see Go why. On. Okay. So Money from Anywhere by Pat O'Brien. Proposal. A new American dream. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone. Henry David Thoreau. When my book, Your Portable Empire, How to Make Money from Anywhere Doing What You Love, was published in August 2007, it was called The Most Dangerous Book Ever. What made that book dangerous was that underneath the technical how-to internet marketing information was a philosophy that the current economic model was terminally broken. The days when you could go to school, go to college, and then get a job that would support you economically for the rest of your life are over. That philosophy stated that a job is the least effective way to make money, that if you have a boss 
you are a slave. And it posited that it was past time to free the slaves. Goodbye, American dream. Good riddance. It's time for a new American dream. Even if such a life would provide you with enough money to live, that's not really living. Far too many people sacrifice their lives for a life. They had a house, a car, a TV set, and possibly a two-week vacation once a year. Hatch 2.5 kids who grew up to do the same thing. Then, after 40 years in a mind-numbing job, they retired. Too old to enjoy the freedom, and too many decades removed from the dreams that would make that freedom worth having. Okay, so why did you, why did you say this piece was uh, difficult or challenging for you? Um, I looked at it realizing that there are several opening openings. You have the title, mm-hmm. then you have the proposal, then you have a quote. Yeah. And I, I don't quite grasp how to separate those so they make sense. Right. Okay, so let's, let's, let's address that. Um, okay. There's a concept that I teach called the four voices of nonfiction. Okay, and very quickly I'll, I'll go because this is, this is uh, relevant to your question or your issue. Um, okay. The first voice of nonfiction uh, for women, I call it your Siri voice. It's the sort of a flat computer, very quiet, it's a quieter tone. It's very much like a documentary kind of voice, sort of like the person who does, uh, that guy who does uh, How It's Made on television. It's a very, you know, it's a very relaxed, very neutral, kind of, it's quieter in its tone. And that's the first voice of nonfiction. Second voice of nonfiction is what I call the voice of confident authority. This is the, the crux of what the author is trying to get across in its most elemental. Um, it's, the, it's the tone of voice we use if we were teaching someone something. Sort of the, the tone of voice is sort of saying, you better write this down because it's going to be on the midterm test. Um, the third voice of nonfiction is what I call the voice of informed opinion. And this is when you give us your thoughts and feelings and opinions about the facts you're giving us. So it's not enough to say for you to say uh, the sun rises in the east. You might say the sun rises in the east. And let me tell you, when you live near the equator, it gets really hot out here. Right? So that's your feeling about that fact. The fourth voice is what we call the voice of the other. And you do something to the voice in that moment to let us know you are quoting something that you didn't write, like the quote from Thoreau. Okay? So if we were to look at this and break it down, uh, Money from Anywhere by Pat O'Brien, Proposal on New American Dream, that's in the first voice. So it's a little quieter, a little flatter. And then you take a beat, and then you do something with your voice. It could just be a a tone. Uh, the, The voice of the other is a pretty wide open category. If you know, if, depending on the material, sometimes you might put on a voice that, like, let's say you're quoting someone who's a cowboy. You might say, "Well, I was out there doing the thing," he said, or whatever. Um, there, there's a lot of choices here, but we can do something with okay. the voice to let you know. Put it around. I would say in this case, put air quotations around it. And then when okay. you get to the citation, go back to the first voice and say, "Henry David Thoreau." So let me show you what it sounds like. Money from Anywhere by Pat O'Brien Proposal A New American Dream A man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone Henry David Thoreau Did you hear the switch? 
Absolutely, yes. Okay. So then it goes into his first bit. When my book did this thing, it was called The Most Dangerous Book Ever. That's a fact as you see it in the, as, as the author. You're stating the truth. Okay. 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 Then you give us your opinion about it. Well, what made it dangerous was this thing. So there's a shift okay. in tone there, right? It's much more conversational. Right. The, the, the secret of nonfiction is that the majority of nonfiction lives <clears throat> in this third voice. It is the voice of your opinions and your feelings and thoughts. So it's very – this is where the, quote, conversational part comes into play, right? Okay. So yeah. we know that the opening sentence is like, listen to me, this is important. And then, um, and then we work our way through it from there to see, you know, you have to sort of, you'd have to, I mean, without not getting too far into the nitty gritty, um, you see, uh, the rest of that, the rest of that paragraph is just your feeling about it. Um, and then you start the, the bottom paragraph, even if such a life provide you with enough money to live that's not really living and that's that's your truth as you see it and then so as the second Mm -hmm. sentence far too many people sacrifice their lives for a life and you you feel that is the truth and now what are you going to do you're going to give us an example you describe what a life is so it's much more conversational does that make sense yes yes okay so so when you get to the those those the truth moments in this, I want to hear what I usually do. I'm not kidding. I actually take my finger and I point it at the audience. Like, listen to me. This is important. Do you hear me? And then when I switch into the conversational tone, I drop that and I sort of use both my hands and I'm much, I use a lot more gestures, which is why I do a lot of takes over in the studio because I'm always whacking the microphone with my hand by gesturing. (laughs) But, (laughs) But I want to have that feel because I talk with my hands. I mean, it's a good thing we're not on Skype because I, my hands are always everywhere when I'm working. Okay, so let's just let's take this in pieces. I want you to do the opening okay. up through the citation of Henry David okay. Thoreau. So I want to hear that you're going from voice one to voice four to voice one again. So let's okay. do it. Money from Anywhere by Pat O'Brien. Proposal, A New American Dream. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone. Henry David Thoreau. Excellent. So you see, I, I, well, I heard you the shift in tone, and suddenly I, you did, you know, you sort of, like I said, you put air quotations around it, right? Now, if this yes. were, let's say this were, you know, if you were quoting someone and the book was very, very humorous, like let's say, like in the Maltese Falcon piece that was the first sample. Later on in that, they quote the movie. They actually have a, mo- a quote from the Multi-Stalking movie. And when I recorded it, suddenly I was like, yeah, you know, if they hang you out, I'll always remember you. You're an angel. I'll wait for you. You know, and so I'm doing But it's appropriate because the piece itself is humorous. But I'm doing something to let them know I didn't quote this. And that's what you did. You gave me – I heard that difference. Okay, so now let's move into the piece. So the lights come up on you. So let's let me give you a setting, okay? okay. You're here – in a ho- uh, one of those Holiday Inn conference rooms, a big one, and you've got a room full of people. You are here to sell your coaching program. That's what this book is, by the way. It's about setting okay. – he he's got a company called PortableEmpireCoaching.com. That's what the whole book is about. Okay? So you're sort of like a carnival barker in the fact that you're trying to get people off of their butts to go to the back of the room to – pay for your your thing or a carnival barker to pay the money to go see the hoochie coochie girls in the tent or whatever right so you're you're challenging them 
and you're telling them why they need to know this. So that's the, that's the audience. So now the light comes up on you, and give it a go. When my book, Your Portable Empire, How to Make Money from Anywhere Doing What You Love, was published in August 2007, it was called The Most Dangerous Book Ever. What made that book dangerous was that underneath the technical how-to marketing information was a philosophy that the current economic model was terminally broken. The days when you could go to school, go to college, and then get a job that would support you economically for the rest of your life are over. That philosophy stated that a job is the least effective way to make money, that if you have a boss, you are a slave. And it posited that there was a that it was past time to free the slaves. Buy American dream. Good riddance. It's time for a new American dream. Even if, such a, even if such a life would provide you with enough money to live, that's not really living. Far too many people sacrifice their lives for a McLife. They had a house, a car, a TV set, and possibly a two-week vacation once a year. Hatched 2.5 kids who grew up doing the same thing. Then, after 40 years in a mind-numbing job, they retired. Too old to enjoy the freedom and too many decades removed from the dreams that would make that freedom worth having. That was much better. Lisa, did you hear how when she was emphatic, she was a little more direct, a little slower, a little more didactic in her delivery, and then she switched to this more, much more it's fluid, conversational you know, a little bit of why she was a bit of a wise guy about it. You know, she was a bit sarcastic. Did you hear the shift in tone? Yes. And there's also passion in how you're coming across, which, you know, I mean, right. I, I'm getting that. That's good. It, it carries the message. Because if right. you don't and believe little, in it at all, you've got nothing no. to say. Right. And, and yeah. this is, you know, the books have, you, when you're looking at a, a piece of nonfiction, you have to ask yourself, is the author preaching to the choir, as it were? Or are they trying mm-hmm. to convert you to their point of view? Because that takes the tone mm-hmm. in two very different directions. Mm-hmm. Like the, this book mm-hmm. and the book I did about the doom and gloom eco- economics is that they're trying to convert you to their point of view so they can sell you something, mm-hmm. whether it's an idea or a coaching program or a new car or whatever. If you, they're trying to yeah. say, you know, my idea is the one you need to follow. That's different from if you were doing a book about um, – uh, you know, if, if you're doing something about uh, uh, 101 uses for kale, well, the odds are that you're already probably a vegetarian or a vegan, so they don't have to convince you of it. They just start from the premise that we all agree this is this is a good thing. So now they're just going to build on that. You see, there's a difference in the fee, in 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 the the tone. So that's why this one has to have that that level of passion to it. Because if you don't, then why would I get off of my seat and go spend my money to buy your program? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Nancy, do you have any thoughts or from that from that time through? Oh boy, I love that that picture you gave me. To you know, I'm in a room and I'm using my finger <laughs> right <laughs> when go. I have those. You know, yeah. I'm 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 definitely no. I I, I actually felt a difference. I was more reading it. I'd read through it before, and I thought I was prepared, but no, I, I, I think that was really helpful to put myself somewhere different. So yes. that was awesome. The only thing, I, question I have about the script, do you think that it should say M-A-C, life, so that word is 
you know, a slightly elongated Mac life well, instead of yeah, the, the, the What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, you're thinking the, the idea of the gag is a visual gag over the word McDonald's. We don't say oh, McDonald's. Yeah. Okay. We say McDonald's. Right. You have a McCoffee at McDonald's, McDonald's with a McShake McDonald's, and McFry. McDonald's. Have a McLife. Yeah, that's true. Right. McLife. Now, you have to understand in our world, we don't, I mean, we, there, there's a, there's a misunderstanding about nonfiction also. Many, many people, even narrators, they think that nonfiction narration is a verbatim recitation of the text like fiction is, and it's not. It's 99.99% the same, but there's a chunk of it that you change all the time, such as we don't say in the, in the chart below, you'll see blah, blah, blah. No, there's no above or below in an audiobook. There's either upcoming or previously. Um, we have to define acronyms, so we have to insert – if we say the word NATO, we say we'll insert the phrase, which is an acronym for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. If we have odd abbreviations – I mean, most people know what IE and EG mean, but what about VG or QT or some obscure <laughs> Latin thing? You have to be able to expand those. And so the touchstones that I use for myself and what I teach, are, it's really simple. If you encounter a piece of text that you're not sure on and you want to change, you're cha- if you can say, yes, that I'm changing it to help listener comprehension – and know that I am not changing the author's intention, then you make the change. So when I have a, an, an acronym, I'll define what the acronym is for listeners' comprehension, but I haven't changed anything with the, the author's intention. And I, so you know, that, that gives me two solid legs to stand on should I ever have a publisher come back to me and say, why did you add this text? Or if I'm in a fight with a proofer or, or an engineer about it, now, that's me exercising my director's hat to say, no, I did that so that the listener could comprehend what it is I'm seeing on the page. Mm-hmm. And so it's, and, and, uh, it's something I would tell all your listeners when you're dealing with nonfiction, that that's, if you, as long as you can answer those two questions, one yes, one no, then you're on solid, uh, solid ground. And what are the questions again? Well, the first one is, you want to say yes to the question, are you enhancing the listener's comprehension? And you want to say no to, are you changing the author's intention? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, and to so find the it, author, are no, you ever ahead. wrong about the author's intention? Do you ever need to get uh, clarification from an author? What is well, your intention? Well, yeah, only if I don't understand. Let's, okay, yes. The, 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 it's only rare. But let's say the author uses a term of phrase that I'm totally unfamiliar with and I can't find reference for. I'll call them and say, is this phrase correct as it's written? Because, you know, we deal with – the thing about doing nonfiction, one of the, to me one of the rewards and challenges is the book is only going to come across – their authority as, as a thought leader, as it were is only going to be solidified by my performance. So I have to say all these really odd turns a phrase with absolute confidence, right? I have to fake it. Uh, you know, there's that old that thing about they say that uh, honesty and truthfulness are the cornerstones of great acting. Well, once you learn how to fake that, you've got it made. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you just fake it till you make it. So if I'm go- talking about chemical formulas or Latin phrases or or economics and I have these odd phrases, I have to be able to say them like someone who spent their life using that phrase. 
So if I encounter something, I'm like, wait a minute, is that how you really say it? Do you say that the sugar is in solution with the water, or should it be in the solution with the water? And I didn't know. So I, I didn't call the author. I called a friend of mine who was a chemist. And he said, oh, no, no, we say in solution. That's the way you say that, that the sugar right. has been dissolved in the water. Therefore, the sugar is in solution. And so it was very so, thorough. It was thorough of you to check, though. You got to check, right? Well, check that's the, the thing. Checker. That's why I said when that the test, if you hit a phrase or something you don't understand, yeah. stop and go look it right. up. Because I will tell you, if you guess, you and you know, I uh, had a, you know, if you guess and you guess wrong, trust me, the people who are going to listen to that book know something about chemistry. And they will leave you very nasty reviews on Audible.com, which will get read by your publisher. We don't want that. We don't want that. No, we do not want so, that. So um, I'd like to move on to our next caller, if that'd be okay. okay. And Thank Pat, you so much. Oh, wait, like wait, Nancy, do you have a website? Yeah. Do you have a website, Nancy? You know, I have a website, but I'm, I don't want anyone to go look at it right now. It's not ready. So, okay. so <laughs> it's, it's in the works. Okay. That's fine. Okay, so... Uh, thank you so much for you did a beautiful job reading, really. And hey, um, we're going to go on, to, and I'm going to put you back in the listening queue. I hope you'll stay with us until the end of the show if you have time to do that. Thanks, thanks, Nancy. Okay, all right. The next caller, the next lucky caller, who is not a victim, <laughs> Sean. <laughs> this is Rich from Tucson, Arizona. Rich, are you there? I'm here, Lisa. Are Rich? you there? Hey, Rich. Yep, I'm I, here. I am. I am here. Are you there, Sean? Yes, I am. Okay, hey, great. great. And by the way, before you. we get started with, before we get started with Rich, um, there is one other caller from area code 407. If you would like a chance to read for Sean, please press the number one on your phone. On your phone. <laughs> yeah, that's the word. On your keypad. <laughs> so I'll, I'll know that you want to talk to him. Um, you, you're free to still listen, though. You don't have to press the number one key if you don't want to. So, Rich, what would you like to read for Sean? Uh, Sean, if it's all right, I would love to try that first book from uh, 25 Books That Shaped America. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Right. 25 Books That Shaped America by Thomas C. Foster. The bird is the word. The Maltese falcon. I have read many and I do mean many, English mysteries. They're very interesting, brain teasers with lots of potential suspects, almost none of whom behave very well toward police, and almost all of whom are quirky, eccentric in some way, or even several ways, with tons of clues, both false and real, with loads of atmosphere in manor houses. Have you ever noticed how British mystery writers seem to want to level the playing field by killing off the aristocracy? Talk about class warfare. Oh, and the detectives, all shapes and sizes and backgrounds. They give us slumming noblemen with plummy accents and loyal retainers who go sleuthing as a hobby. Displaced little Belgians retired from official policing who have somehow pitched up on British shores. Village spinsters armed only with knitting needles and superhuman powers of observation. Parish priests using Catholic logic and police inspectors writing sensitive poetry. And on and on. Yes, and that Sherlock fellow, whatever he might be. It takes all kinds, you might say. But that's okay, because they have all kinds. We have one. That's okay. One is enough, if it's the right one. Which this one is. He, 
although he's sometimes a she these days, is pure American, tough, unafraid, good with his fists or his guns, adept at street lingo and wisecrack, especially in the face of danger, ethically ambiguous, barely legal, aloof, better at confrontation than puzzle solving. However many avatars he may have, he's really just one guy, and he has just one name. Okay, good first round. Okay, so I want to introduce a new concept here. Um, When I was a theater actor at the Pearl, we had a rule that said if you were doing a a big monologue or a soliloquy and you realize that you would – let's say the soliloquy you're doing for the audience – and you realize you're talking about three separate topics. So the beginning of the soliloquy, you're talking about your father, the king, and your feelings about him. In the middle of it, you switch to the upcoming war that's about to happen. And then at the end, you're talking about this woman you're in love with. Okay. So the rule was is that if it became clear and obvious that you were moving on to a new idea within the, t- within the speech, you had to make it separate and new subtextual choice, meaning you had to have a different uh, emotional color, as it were, right? Make a different Mm -hmm. acting choice. So Mm -hmm. if in the beginning you're ambivalent about your father because you never really loved him or he never really loved you, so you're not sure, you know, about what's going to be next. But then when you talk about the war, you're seeing it as a clear moment where you could find glory and rise to your station that you've always wanted to. So you're excited about that. And then the last thing about the woman is you have a deep sense of sadness because you love her, but she doesn't love you. So we have three different topics, each with a different, what I call, emotional color to it, right? Now, we did this Mm -hmm. to prevent actors from either crying or shouting their way through an entire monologue, which if you've ever seen Bad Shakespeare, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so, so let's apply this concept to these four paragraphs, okay? okay. So uh, there's another uh, little uh, chestnut we take from theater, especially doing Shakespeare, and that is Everything you need to know about how to play a scene in Shakespeare is actually in the text itself if you just know where to look. All right? So, so we've taken this, these two ideas about emotional colors and about looking for clues. So let's apply it to these four paragraphs. When I look at the first paragraph, which is an idea, because each paragraph, if it's well-written, is a meditation on one idea. Here, you're talking about English mysteries. That's, that's the idea, and you're ta- the, the, the mm-hmm. detectives are just part of that. So you're talking about this one concept. Okay, so when I look at the language that's being used here, that you talk about, um, you know, uh, they're interesting, but they're quirky and eccentric. Uh, they talk about slumming noblemen with plummy accents and uh, that Sherlock fellow, whatever he might be. If I had to come up with a word or a phrase that best described the subtext or the feeling I was I, when I was talking about it, if I had to come up with a word or phrase, I would use the phrase or word sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic here. Do you agree? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in the border on the, on, the, on the side of the page, I'd write sarcastic or sarcasm or something. The second paragraph is only three words. It's we have one because you're comparing Americans to Brits here or at least detectives. And because that little paragraph is all by itself, it's meant to be very important. And that phrase, that little sentence seems very nationalistic to me, very jingoistic, like, you know, USA all the way. And so mm-hmm. that's what I would have written in the margin, USA all the way or USA number one. Like I said, the, uh, 
these words or phrases don't have to mean anything to anybody else but you, as long as that little you know, scrawl on the side elicits the right emotional response you're looking for. Then we go into mm-hmm. the third paragraph, and we begin to describe this mystery person. We don't know who it is yet, but we know that he's tough, he's unafraid, barely legal, aloof, you know, um, and a phrase, when I look at this, when I look at the language here, the attitude that I would put in here is, I wrote the phrase, cool, daddy-o, like he's cool, you know, <laughs> he's tough, he's like, he's cool, man, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And, uh, and then finally, we have the word, all by itself, one paragraph, one word, spade. And that seems like, it feels like when you throw a trump card down when you're playing cards, or you do a mic drop, as they, as they say nowadays, it's like I've just laid mm-hmm. the truth on you, boom, see you later, peace out. That's what that, that one attitude feels like. So let's review. The first, ad, the first paragraph was sarcastic. Second paragraph was jingoistic or nationalistic. The, th- the third one was cool, daddy-o. And the last one, I just wrote the phrase or word, all in caps. I wrote the word "boom" with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah. Okay. So now, when you go through it this time, I want you to hold that emotional attitude first. Don't proceed until you've got it. So if you're going to be sarcastic, this is an acting exercise, by the way. If you're going to be sarcastic, I really want you to be sarcastic. Okay. However okay. you are sarcastic, but I want to hear the sarcasm like, yeah, whatever, British detectives, whatever, <laughs> right? I want to hear that tone of voice, and then I want to hear the change to like, you know, to the next one, to the next one, and so on, okay? Okay. Okay, so take a second, and then when you're ready, jump on in there. All right. The Maltese Falcon. I have read many, and I do mean many, English mysteries. They're very interesting, these brain teasers, with lots of potential suspects, almost none of whom behave very well toward police, and almost all of whom are quirky, eccentric in some way, or even several ways, with tons of clues, both false and real, with loads of atmosphere in manor houses. Have you ever noticed how British mystery writers seem to want to level the playing field by killing off the aristocracy? Talk about class warfare. Oh, and the detectives. All shapes and sizes and backgrounds. They give us slumming noblemen with plummy accents and loyal retainers who go sleuthing as a hobby. Displaced little Belgians retired from official policing who have somehow pitched up on British shores. Village spinsters armed only with knitting needles and superhuman powers of observation. Parish priests using Catholic logic and police inspectors writing sensitive poetry. And on and on. Yes, and that Sherlock fellow, whatever he might be. It takes all kinds, you might say. But that's okay, because they have all kinds. We have one. That's okay. One is enough if it's the right one, which this one is. He, although he's sometimes a she these days, is pure American, tough, unafraid, stood with his fists or his gun, adept at street lingo and wisecracks, especially in the face of danger, ethically ambiguous, barely legal, aloof, better at confrontation than puzzle solving. However many avatars he may have, he's really just one guy. And he has just one name. 
spade. See, you got it right this time. See, last time you went, you went spade way up high, but this time, because you, you set it up right, the word spade is the lowest point in your register, and you did that exactly right. I was hoping you would. Boom. Because it's like, boom, spade. <laughs> yep. You know, he's the, he's the guy, spade. And so yeah. so when you – now, this doesn't always work with every single piece of nonfiction, but generally, especially especially if it's in first person, if you have a writer who has any sense about them, they're going to give you their uh, feelings and their thoughts and their opinions about the thing they're talking about, and they're going to use good descriptive language, right? And, that, and in each paragraph, if you look carefully, sometimes it's only one word. This one's pretty, you know, and, uh, some in here, like with we have one in spade, there is no one word. It's more of a, a tone or an attitude that you have to sort of suss out while you're playing around with the text. But if you approach each one like that, you know, and, you know, initially you'll have to take the time to write them out and plan ahead a bit. But what that does, Lisa, did you hear how the, the tempo and the melody and the tone shifted from each of the four paragraphs? Yes, I did, yes. Because there's going to be a test later, Lisa. I'm going to quiz you on this. You yeah, know. there's a lot. It's, you know, to keep the intensity going, though, that's, that's a challenge, right? Well, that's why at the yeah. end of the day, all I want to do is have a scotch and watch things blow up on television. <laughs> okay, Pretty so that's, that's, how you that's, that's right. how you really That's how you really deal with being in that booth for eight hours. Okay. <laughs> There's that prize. There's a big carrot. There's a 12-year-old carrot at the other end with ice and, uh, and cartoons. Yeah. There you go. Pull out the, pull, pull out the balcony. That's right. <laughs> Well, so now, are, are, have you narrated audiobooks before, Richard? I have, yeah. I've, uh, about half of them have been nonfiction as well. Full, most of most of those full-length um, nonfiction um, titles, and uh, just a, a various different genres in uh, novels as well. Good, good. And so, do you, do you enjoy nonfiction as a as a as opposed to fiction? You know, I I enjoy them both for for different reasons. Um, and and I, I say this kind of jokingly. One of the reasons that I enjoy the nonfiction is because it's for an outside publisher and, and he's paying me for it. Um, but it's also uh, it's been really interesting. I've I've actually learned quite a bit. It's one of those things where because of the job that I have, I've been able to learn a lot about a subject that's interesting to me. So so that's yeah. been really good. Um, and the, exactly, and the, yeah. the novels, the novels they've been kind of all over the map, and it's been it's been enjoyable trying to come up with different voices for different types of fiction. Absolutely. So, are you talking about character voices, of course, right? Well, character voices, but also the narrator voice. I mean, the yeah, you know, there's a, a tone. A crime drama, a, a serial killer crime drama, is going to be a lot uh, different than a, a historical fiction. So, well, yeah, it's it, been interesting coming up with those those background narrator tones. That's why you, when I say that one of the first steps is do you become the author. So, once again, for the doom and gloom economic book I did. It's very serious, so it's lowered my register. It's a little more aggressive in its delivery. And the book I'm starting tomorrow is written by uh, a Zen Buddhist master about power of positive thinking and meditation. So it's going to be lighter and easier and a little more sort of ethereal. In my, I'm going to try for sort of that kind of ethereal, new agey kind of sound because that, that fits the genre. And so those, are, those are, are, in effect, those are characters. Thank Sean, you need that book after the last one. That's the I had thing. no joke. You know, <laughs> thank God that came up. Timing is everything, you know. 
How do you do all those accents, Sean? Though you know, I mean, you were just well. I don't like go. A, that's a, see, I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real bear. I mean, when I was doing lots of fiction, that's one of the really you know, for a lot of people who first start narrating, that becomes one of the, that's like a, the big bait on the hook. You know, there are performers who have they're really good with accents or storytelling, and and that's one of the initial draw. For me, it was. I can tell you, but after a while. I don't know, it, you know, you sort of end up re- narrating the same kind of detective novel or the same kind of romance or the same kind of Western. And after a while, it just gets, a, it just feels a little repetitive. And, um, and so for me, I, that I'm speaking just for myself. I have other narrators, I, you know, my students and colleagues who love that stuff all day long. They can do it day in, day out. And that's great. It just wasn't, you know, over time, it, if I had only done fiction, I, I'm not sure if I would have stuck with it or been as aggressive about pursuing it. But for me, you know, learning about how we got to the moon or how do we drill for oil in the middle of the ocean or, the, you know, I've, I've narrated literally two dozen books about the Great Recession. And who knows, I may have just started another series of books about the next Great Recession for all I know. <laughs> but, but I've learned so much about how government and economics work and mathematics and sociology and psychology. And so... You know, but but for me, when you, yeah, the accents are fun, but they're not nearly as enjoyable to me as the intellectual stimulation I get from, and and then the challenge, as you can see from what we just scratched the surface here today, how much how complex this stuff can get really fast. So suddenly you're dealing with what is this? What is the emotional attitude of each paragraph? You're dealing with different voices in the fiction nonfiction itself. Um, you're dealing with uh, tone and attitude, all those, th- and then also having to create your own text. Trust me, that'll keep you on your toes for quite some time. But how yeah, do you no do doubt. That with bad text. How do you create your own text with bad text? Well, there is a limit to what you can do. I mean, if it's poorly written, it's poorly written. When I'm yeah. saying change the text, in other words, if there's an obvious, if there's an, you know, if the, if the verb tense is past, but it needs to be present, then you need to change it. Or if there's a word left out, you put the word back in. But you, you're not allowed to, you know, to edit. And in some ways, I don't want to because if the if the book is not well written or well edited, that's not my job to make it better. You know, you can only put so much lipstick on the pig, as it were. <laughs> and as far I think as I've left your speechless. As, <laughs> as, no, as far as doing accents, what do you suggest to people for practicing those accents? Uh, listen, go on to YouTube. If you want to learn how to speak, well, first of all, pick some that you've, you feel you're going to be using. And I think the easiest way to do it is to um, uh, go on to YouTube and watch newscasts or documentaries that take place in those parts of the country. In other words, if you want to learn yeah. how to speak with an Australian accent, go on YouTube and look up some Australian newscasts. Listen to the newscasters. Can I hear you know? your Australian accent right now? Because that's no, not no, an no, easy it's one terrible. To do. Come it's on, terrible. let's go. It's totally out of God. No, no, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're going to ruin my yeah. you're going to ruin my faux intellectual <laughs> superiority here by making me do no, no, no. no, no, no. straight on my face. No, I wish I did. I really, you know, I'm, I, I'll be honest with you. The, the only accents I really do anymore are American accents of different kinds. But like I said, I only do, you know, maybe four or five fiction pieces a year. And of those, I might have some that have some accents, but I get a long and head, long enough of a heads up that it's coming down the line, that if I feel I'm rusty on it, I can, 
get it sharp before I do it, but then once it's over – so it's really also – it's not about the accent so much. It's about character mm-hmm. voices, and there's a, that's, that's different than accent. Um, a character voice – I tell people that what the system I use when I'm doing character voices – so not accents necessarily, although sometimes the two are folded together. But let's say it's, it, it's an American book, and there's nothing special about the accents. The first thing that I do when I'm reading the book is I say to myself, does this character in my head, do they sound like somebody I already know? Does the kindly old doctor in this town, does he sound like Ronald Reagan to me? Oh, well, then I'm just going to have to pull out the Ronald Reagan voice and sort of talk like that. You know, okay, great. That's the, or it might be my great uncle Buck. You know, and he, you know, he sort of talked like that because he's from South Oklahoma. He's got sort of a little tighter accent, a little quicker up there. And so that's great uncle Buck, right? The second thing I do is if, when I'm reading the book, if I don't have a clear picture of a voice, I look for any descriptors. So, if the book, if the character in the book is a 60-year-old, aggressive. Um, chain-smoking cigar smoker who's the chief of police, you know. But he's going to talk like that. He's going to have that kind of a voice. Because that, you know, if you've known someone who's smoked their entire life, that's, they've got that chesty kind of rasp going on. So you're looking for descriptive words. And then the last thing, the last thing I do sometimes, if I'm, if I'm stuck with a scene, let's say I'm doing a scene that's got five German men all between the ages of 25 and 30, okay? And I don't do German very well, right? We all have, you know, it's like you have, okay, that's my German accent. Okay, that's fine. Or it's like your Russian accent. Yeah, they all sound like Boris and Natasha, but that's all I got. So if you've got that with, uh, let's say, the scene with the five German men, what you do then is you give each one just one strong vocal affectation. So one speaks aggressively, one speaks slowly, one speaks with a nasality, and so on. That's all you need for the listener to go, oh, that's Hans speaking. Oh, that's Herman speaking, and so on. So you just, you know, there's a lot of tricks you do like that, but oftentimes with with character voices or men and women's voices, it's not so much like, you know, um, I can't pay the rent, but you must pay the rent. I'll pay the rent, that kind of stuff. It's just a, it's about the it's about the attitude of the character, you know. So when I do women's voices, I don't go into falsetto. I try to take as much baritone out of my voice, but I tend to ma- I might speak a little faster. I might be more melodic in the sentence structure, and men tend to speak slower and with a flatter melody. But it's a very subtle switch, and you don't need to over you don't need to overplay it. It's not like you're doing puppet voices. So there's a there's a wide range about character voices that have nothing to do with accents, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, I love your British accent, by the way. It is it's stellar. Your British accent, uh, <laughs> the British female voice is such it's it's a riot, really. You're great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, how many accents can you do? Oh, good lord. Probably two hundred. Oh 10, no 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 no! Not even close. Not even close. No, I, you know, I don't know until I am thrown into it. Um, uh, you know, I'd, like I said, it's 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 one of these things that you you, know, you until you get the book and read through it, and then then you know then you you look at the challenges coming up, and then you have to analyze it, and you have and hopefully you have enough time to 
there's a colleague of mine, her name is Katie Kelgren. In fact, we were classmates back when we were studying in, in England together. She's a wonderful narrator. And uh, she really, uh, she has does lots of British accents and she has a whole all these great series she do she does that sort of like these sailing men on the high seas back in the day and damsels in distress and she's just great and and so fortunately for her is that she has the time to really focus on those accents to get them just right and that's if you know if you do lots and lots of fiction you that's just part of what you have to do as a narrator one more reason you know given the volume of material i narrate i could never have, i could never do 50 fiction books in a year there's just no way mm-hmm. but nonfiction, i have enough time to prep the book get it ready wrap my head around it um i was i was uh, you know because the other thing about nonfiction, just like fiction you have repetition of ideas and styles of writing so uh, to draw an analogy i have a friend of mine he's played piano we we both started performing when we were really young and uh, Jerry has been playing piano long enough that if you were to put a piece of music in front of him, cold, and he would start to play it, within the first 10 seconds, 15 seconds, he'd go, okay, this is in 4-4 four, four time. It's in the key of A. Oh, I got it. It's, uh, it's jazz. Oh, it's ragtime jazz. Oh, it's a Scott Joplin piece. Good. Got it. Boom. And he's off. And he, he just mm-hmm. knows because he, he's played that piece a hundred times before in one form or another. And so, once again, with this economics book I did – I've done books like this on and off for 20 years. I've probably done two to three dozen books just like it in its tone and style. So once you once you hear the author's voice and you know what they're going to go after, then you just you know exactly what's going to be required of you to 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 put the book across for the listener and make it entertaining. And do you read the whole book before you? I mean, read it before you read it. Uh, fiction, yes. Fiction, yes, always. Nonfiction, right. I don't have time. So what I do is I skim through the material I'm going to work on that day. But also mm-hmm. after a while, um, I I just know the tone. So really, essentially, what right. you're hearing is me reading cold when you hear me do nonfiction. Um, but that's the beauty of punch and roll and the technology. If I don't like the take, I'll go back immediately and make it exactly the way I want it before I move on. The only time it gets tricky is if you have a book that requires a lot of um, research. For instance, when I did a three-volume history of Nazi Germany by Richard Evans, it was a ton of research about names and places and stuff. So I have a researcher, and I hire her, and I send her the books, and she reads them and does all the research and writes out all the pronunciations. And I pay Mm -hmm. her, and I bill the clients, and, you know. um, But the majority of the stuff that I do is current topics, um, very little research that I can do on my own very quickly. Um, it's the kind of material I do in nonfiction tends to be first person. I have, like my friend Grover mm-hmm. Gardner, he does a lot of third person nonfiction. He's really good doing histories about things and memoirs and biographies. He's just got this, he just has a great delivery and a great style for that. And, um, but for me, it, it tends to be first person POV. And usually yeah. there's not a lot of research in that, but there. So I, you know, like I said, in the morning when I'm having coffee, I'm, I'm looking over the material I'm going to narrate that day and getting a feel, and like, oh, look, in chapter seven, there's going to we're going to do that. Okay, good. And now I know I'm prepared for that. Oh, I need to look that up before I start narrating. Okay, I'll go on YouTube and how do you say that guy's name and so on, 
and then I'm yeah. ready to get started for the day. So, um, Rich, did you have any other questions uh, for Sean before I'm going to put you back in the uh, listening queue? Sure, yeah, that's fine. No, I don't um, have any other questions. Did, just, did you have any other questions? To, uh, speak with Sean. Yeah, and did you, since we've extended this to everybody, would you like to give out any contact information for yourself, website address, anything like that? Sure, yeah, you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com. Richvoiceproductions.com. Great. That's cheeky. Well, thank yeah, you. I like that. Because he has a rich thank voice. You. There you go. Rich, when you need I, a rich yeah, voice. I get it. I, that took me a second. I get it now. I, I really I get that. <laughs> no, but this is great. Thanks thank a lot, John. I really appreciate it. Thank, oh, you're welcome, Rich. Th- thank you so much. Thank you, Rich. Thanks, Lisa. You, okay. All right. Okay. So. I thought uh, maybe it would be good, Sean, in the le- we've got 11 minutes left. Okay. Uh, if you want to tell people about the training you provide, anything that we missed in the first part, I mean, I'm sure there's many other things you could talk about, you know, <laughs> about narration. I bet. Well, that'll be another show, you know. But. Okay. Yeah, we'll do part two later. Um, yeah, sure. So why don't you, yeah, what? Um, yeah. I, I, I coach uh, narrators on nonfiction audiobook technique. And um, I do it via Skype, one-on-one. I do hold workshops around the country, but those are sort of, you know, if if the mood strikes me and if I want to co-teach with somebody and they're sort of hit or miss. But mainly I coach privately. I tend to only work with people who are working narrators. Even if you only have a couple of books under your belt, I know that you are, you've, you've been through the trial by the crucible of getting up and running. Um, and... Uh, I always tell people if I had to break down what it is I do as a coach, it's it's basically like a three-legged stool. The first leg I provide is structure. I'm a very type A personality. So uh, I work from a textbook of material, of samples and the, that I drew from today for our session, or the podcast today. Um, and I have a textbook of material that I have narrated personally. Everything that I, I teach from is something I had to struggle through. And each assignment comes with its own concept. And so it's a very, there's a curriculum involved. I'm not the kind of performer or teacher who's like, do it again, but think of the color blue. And I'm like, nah, that doesn't work for me. I want a structure inside which I can really perform. And then the second thing I do with my, when I work with people is I provide them a methodology for success. It's not, uh, I'm sure you've had other guests come on and tell you that, you know, it's called show business for a reason. And it's not enough that you are talented. You have to be able to turn this into some kind of cohesive, focused, directed career. And that means having to learn about marketing and advertising, networking, and so on. So I And we're using social media. And so I force my students to – and force sometimes is the word. I force them to get on social media, to go to networking events, to market and advertise. Um, and then finally the thing – that I hope I impart to them over time when I work with people in the back and forth of the assignments and and so on is confidence because so many, you know, there's no school, there's no, you know, you don't go to college to learn how to be an audiobook narrator. It really is trial. I mean, I am an autodidact. I taught myself how to do this. Everything that I, all these concepts that I've shared with your listeners today are things that I just stumbled upon or I, I pulled from some other place in my life, say the theater or film, and then I turned it 90 degrees, gave it a spin, and suddenly it made sense in the world of audiobooks. So 
you have to learn that confidence over time. And so that's one of the things I really want to give back is that knowledge so that they're not going to be caught short when they're dealing with the book all of, on their own because it really is just you and the words and the microphone at the end of the day. And that's a really that can be a, it can be a really liberating place to be, but it also can be really scary. So what is scary um, about it? What what is scary well, about it? Well, when you're it? faced when you're faced with a when you're faced with a piece of text that's well, it just depends. You might be faced with a piece of text that's incredibly complex, and you're going, okay, how can I make this entertaining to the listener? <laughs> right? Yeah. How do I make this long list of Latin uh, descriptors for different kinds of enzymes entertaining? Or how can I make this section on quantum mechanics entertaining? So sometimes it's the density of the material. Sometimes, and ironically this happens for not only for me but a number of my colleagues, we get tapped to do books that, that even though they might be A or B list books, they're not very well written. And so we literally have been tasked with making a silk purse out of a sow's ear – because in the hands of a lesser narrator, they would botch the job. And it, you know, making audiobooks is expensive. It's a, people don't realize that there isn't, you know, the payoff on an audiobook. It's like buying a stock or a CD. It takes a long time before it's going to reach maturity and make a profit. You know, unless you're doing the next Dan Brown novel, which you know is going to make money. This book on economics. The publisher bought it. They think, hey, it's going to be a big hit next year. We're gambling on it like Hollywood does with movies. And if it does, then great. They've made their money back tenfold. But if it goes meh, maybe they only make it twofold. And if it's a clunker, it might take four years before it makes any money back. So you have – sometimes you have books that you get that the, the pressure is on you to take a book that's mediocre, not very well written or it's mediocre and make it into something better than it is. Make so it there's into a, lot a masterpiece. Of... Yes, make... literally. What a... yeah. Yeah. Just to let you know, we got six minutes left. Okay. What can an audiobook narrator expect to earn in a year? Oh, no, nah, I can't answer that question because you start out in this business and a lot of the work you do is royalty share, which means you don't make any money up front. You get a residual check every time they buy a book. It moves into eventually per finished hour rates. That means they pay you. In other words, if you do a 10-hour book, you can negotiate a rate, say, of, let's for the math, make it easy, $100 per finished hour. So you know you're going to make $1,000 when you finish that book. But the pressure is on you to work as efficiently as possible so that when you get paid that $1,000, you know, how much did it take you for each hour of work? Is your work yeah, finished exactly. hour I mean, and It's not the same as voiceover. Hour. It's not the same as voiceover. No. What, how long does it take you? To, to do a finished hour? Um, two hours of finished work. When I started, it was four to one. That's fast. Now it's two to one. Now that, that's now, very that's, fast. Yes, yeah. and that's, but that's mm. 900 books will give you that. <laughs> and are you, you're doing the meticulous editing work as well, or do you do, a, you just read this thing straight through? You don't really have to edit much. No, no, no. I edit, I, I use a, a method called punch and roll, like I mentioned at the very beginning. Right. I'll record yeah. till I screw up back up, and I, so by the time, Chapter six is finished. I send it to the proofer, and it's they proof it for mistakes. I get the list of mistakes. I do them wild, um, and then I send that all that over to the the mastering house, and they put it all together and for the client. And so my end of it is really just recording the initial text. And so that a, takes me about the one. You have the computer with you in the 
a, in the sound booth that you're in? Oh, or? yeah. Mine, yeah, I have a little Mac Mini, so it, it makes no noise whatsoever. Um, oh, that's but back good. in the old days, I had a big old tower, but it had to sit outside the booth. It made too much noise. Yes. So, that's, so you can do editing. You can punch roll while you're recording then. Absolutely. It's the only way yeah. to fly. It's the only way to make yeah. money. So, Sean, would you just give out your contact information one more time? Sure, absolutely. As we're wrapping up our episode. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, the, uh, hopefully by next week you can get back on my website <laughs> at seanprattpresents.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Sean Pratt Presents. Find me on Twitter at SPPresents. And um, you can also email me directly at seanpratt at comcast.net if you're interested in finding out more about what I do as a coach. Um, but I would advise if you're a brand new person who has no voiceover experience, you might want to look somewhere else because, like I said, um, nonfiction is just more difficult to narrate than fiction. So if you're interested in getting into audiobooks, there are plenty of other really excellent fiction coaches out there that I could recommend to you. Or if you just do a cursory search on Google, you'll find them. Um, but, uh, but take the test. If you really think you're interested, take the test. And I, I had one other question for you. How long would a person generally work with you before they're ready to take the next step with, with the audio books? Well, I, right now, I've, I've been coaching now for several years, and so I take on narrators who are already up and narrating. Oh, right. So, that's right. Yeah. Right. So what I do is I guide them. So when I meet them, maybe they're working for royalty share work that's not paying them very much money, and my goal is by the time we finish working together, because I, I usually see people twice a month because of the volume okay. of students they have. So six months, eight months, nine months later, by that time, I really want them making you know money per hour. I want them booking work. I want them networking and so on, because now they're on the right path. Whether or not they're going to be making big money by the, in nine months, no one can say. I think anyone who says that is, you know, trying to pull a fast one but by the time they graduate from working with me um they're on the right path if they stay focused things are going to start happening for them and it makes i'm very paternal well, about my students i really want them all to do well, well that's very sweet i like that so we have one minute and 42 seconds left <laughs> i don't want to cut you off in the middle of whatever because you're so interesting to listen to i'd hate to cut you off so uh maybe in an upcoming podcast we can talk about marketing social media Absolutely. if you're interested in that or anything else or continue sure. with the same theme great so thank you sean so much and thank you kat and nancy and rich uh really appreciate everybody for being here. And this is Lisa Earhart for Talk Box Radio, and I wish you all fine farewell until the next time we meet up again, which I hope will be soon. Thanks again. Talk Box Radio. Talk Box Radio. Talk Box Radio. Talk Box Radio.